Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Hebrews 11, verse number 31. We have covered a lot of this chapter, and we'll cover the back portion of this chapter uh, pretty quickly. Part of that is because you go from these individual stories to more broad brush. He begins to, to lump a lot of these stories together, and we also already covered uh, a lot of the back of this in Easter. Easter, our sermon covered a lot of that, so we don't have too much longer in the book, but today we just have one verse, verse number 31. I was anticipating going a little bit longer than this, but I was on a flight uh, to Houston here a couple days ago, three days ago. Uh, my wife and I went and I performed a wedding for a girl that was in my youth group in California. And she came into youth group as a seventh grader and we got to know her through junior high and then uh, through her early high school years. And we left California, but we've kept in touch, her especially with my wife all these years. And uh, she got engaged about a year ago and uh, to a guy in Baltimore and said, I'm visiting him in Baltimore. Can we come spend the weekend with you guys and come to church with you? And they did. And uh, they said, would you do our premarital counseling? I said, yes, but not in person. Like, I'm not coming to Texas or she lives in Texas. I said, I'm not coming to Baltimore. We'll do it over Zoom. So we did. And they said, would you do the wedding? And I'd love to. So we went there, just a, a quick trip, got there, did the wedding, came straight back. Uh, but I was on a, a flight and they didn't have Wi-Fi. And I was a little bit miffed about this because I wanted to do some work, and, uh, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I kind of just sat there in my seat, put my stuff away, and I put my head back, and I just took 45 minutes and meditated on this verse, on, on Rahab, and normally you're studying, you're looking, or whatever, but I said, I'm just going to let my brain just think about the applications, the implications of this text, and by the time I was done, I said, there's no way I'm preaching more than this one verse. There's so much in this one verse that, that I want to say. A lot of it I won't even get to today, but uh, we're going to hit this one verse, and then we're going to move on. So read it with me if you would, Hebrews 11, verse number 31, by faith... The harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So let me back up and tell you a little bit of the story because this is the cliff note version, right? The story is that Moses leads the children of Israel out of the promised land. And they cross the Red Sea, or to the promised land, excuse me, out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, and there they have a number of experiences. They have manna that comes down. They have streams in the desert. They have the Sinai experience. They get the law. All these things happen, and eventually they get to the edge of the promised land, and Moses sends 12 spies to spy out Canaan land and give them a report. And if you remember the song from children's church or junior church over the years, uh, 12 men went to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good, right? Remember those little motions if you were maybe a third grader singing that song? 10 came back with an evil report and said, we can't do it, it's too big, it, the cities are too strong, it's, it's just going to be tough. But two spies had a good report, they had faith, Joshua and Caleb. The people believed the evil report and they say, we can't do it, you know, we don't have enough faith in God, and it's not going to happen. And God punishes them, punishes them for their lack of faith and sends them wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Forty years later, they are now back 
to the same spot on the edge of the promised land, only now Moses is no longer leading the people because he has died. But Joshua has taken the helm, and Joshua is leading the people. And Joshua sends two spies into Jericho, this first major city that they need to conquer. Jericho is a big city. Jericho is known for being this impenetrable fortress. It has these massive walls. And he sends two spies in to spy it out. And apparently, they did not have much CIA training because they weren't good. People figured out pretty quickly that there were spies in Jericho, and word got to the king or to the mayor of Jericho. And they not only knew that there were spies, they knew there were two of them, and they knew where they were staying, that they had gone to Rahab the harlot's house. So the king sends soldiers. They look for them, and they go to Rahab and say, where are they? We know they were here. Where are they? And Rahab hides them. She covers for them. She even lies and says, oh, they, they escaped through the gate right as the sun was going down. They slipped out. They're headed towards the Jordan. If you run fast, you can catch them. And so they do. They take off. And then Rahab goes back to the men, and she tells the men, I know that God has given this land to your hands, and I know that your God is the real God. He's the God of heaven, and he's the God of earth, and I believe in him. And I would like you, when you come conquer, I would like you to spare me and my family. And the men say, can do, but you have to keep it a secret. Don't tattle, don't snitch. If you tell somebody, deal's off. And you have to let down this red cord, this, this rope, some sort of material. You have to let it down over your house, and we'll be sure to, to note that, and we will not uh, take you or your father or his house. We'll, we'll leave you be. So she actually, her house was on the walls of Jericho. She lets the spies down by this cord, and off they go. They spend a few days, and they make it back to camp. They give the report. Then eventually, the walls of Jericho do fall down through a long series of events that I won't tell all of them to you. And in Joshua chapter number 6, they come in, and Rahab and her family are spared. And the author of Hebrews, and I must confess I'm a little bit envious of this author because he has a knack for taking these stories and compressing them. And as a pastor, it's your job to take things and compress them down. And I oftentimes feel like I, have, I don't have enough time, you know. And here he can do the story in one verse, and I'm supposed to do it in 30, 35 minutes or so. But he takes this and compresses it down and says, here's what it is. Rahab the harlot. By faith, she did not perish when the other people who did not believe, they did perish. And she received the spies with peace. So I want to take this and I want to ask just a few big questions because this is a very gospel-centered text. I want to ask, what is salvation? Uh, how does salvation come and who does it come to? And then I want to apply that a number of ways at the end. So let's just start big picture, salvation. Now don't get lost on me because this is going to be very central to the text. Uh, salvation is a church word, it's a Bible word. Uh, the Bible calls from cover to cover for men and women to be saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from our sin, okay? What's sin? Well, sin, as far as a classic definition of sin, sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world that he created or not being or doing what he requires in his law. So there is an aspect to sin where you look at the law and you don't be or do what the law says you should do. There's also an aspect where God has revealed himself in nature and you reject God when he reveals himself there and you ignore God there. Sin has a lot of adjectives in the Bible. You can find that sin is described as missing the mark for all sin and come short of the glory of God. You could find it described as crossing a boundary or stepping across a line. Breaking the law, 1 John 3 says that sin is lawlessness. 
uh, failing or slipping or falling is described as sin, but maybe the most classic uh, definition or adjective of sin, synonym of sin, is owing a debt. Uh, we usually think of debts in financial terms, and monetary terms, but sin is a moral debt. And if you maybe, you could incur both at the same time, say you embezzled $50,000, you would incur a financial debt, a monetary debt, and you would need to repay that, but you would also incur a moral debt. So if I embezzled $50,000 from you and you're my employer and I get caught and I come back to you and I say, okay, uh, yeah, I'm guilty. Here's the 50000 back. You know what? Let me give you some interest on top of it. Let me give you 60000 back. Good? No, we're not good. You got the money back, but there is not just the financial debt I, I've incurred. I now have a moral debt as well. It, I could have a legal debt as well, and I could do some jail time for that, but I have a moral debt, and I would need to, or I should at some point in time, say, would you forgive me? I have wronged you, not just in a financial way that affected your bottom line, but I've wronged you in a moral way. I have lied, I've deceived, I have stolen, I have broken your trust. Would you forgive me? But we understand that while we sin against each other and we incur moral debts with each other and we have to ask forgiveness of each other, that ultimately all sin, anytime you reject or ignore God in the world he created, anytime you fail to be or do what God requires in his law, all sin is ultimately against God the ultimate moral one, the ultimate holy one. This is why David would write in Psalm chapter number 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against Uriah. David had sinned against the people that he led. But he said, ultimately, I understand that my sin is against God. And that when we sin, we owe God morally. We have a debt and not a small debt. Not like a $10,000 debt. If, if you had a $10,000 debt and you had to come up with it today, most of you, one way or another, you could come up with it. Whether you had to beg, borrow, barter, steal, you could come up with it. But if you had a $10 billion debt, you're hosed. Try as you may, you may be able to get $10 million, but you're not getting $10 billion. It's not happening. And what the Bible says is that we have a sin debt, a moral debt when we sin against God, and that debt is not a $10,000 debt or not even a $10 million debt. It is a $10 billion debt that you stand no chance of just repaying and making all things good, and God will just let you into heaven because you repaid your moral debt. That's not how it works. Sin ends up being this virus that affects everybody, every human being, and it's the culprit. In all of our brokenness, in all of our failed relationships, in all of our shattered friendships, in all of our pain, in all of our death, sin is the culprit. And the Bible says, to give you just a, a quick summary, that the effects of sin are twofold. They're probably more than two, but the, the main two things that sin does is that it condemns a soul to hell. The soul that sinneth it shall surely die. You find in, in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Revelation that hell is described as the second death on numerous occasions, that you find that it condemns souls to hell, but it also brings a loss of peace and joy due to unrelenting guilt and shame. And this is what sin does to us. Romans 1 says it will dominate our mind, 
We even find that it dominates our emotions and that people begin to love their darkness or their sin rather than light. And there becomes this, this fixation or this, uh, this addiction or this love that's involved with it. But Isaiah 54 tells us that there is no peace for the wicked and that sin ultimately makes lives miserable. And according to Ephesians 2, sin will bring you under the control of Satan and that sin will eventually, this is not popular but it is true, sin will make us the children of wrath that we become the bullseye for the guns of God's justice with our sin. And the reason that we're talking about salvation and sin and what this is is because the text is trying to tell us in no uncertain terms that Rahab is a sinner. If you notice how she's described, she's described as she oftentimes is, this adjective that became affixed to her for the rest of her life, the harlot Rahab, right? So what this means is that Rahab not only sins because we all sin, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3 lays out this very long, profound explanation that we have all sinned, we've all come under judgment and punishment, that every mouth will be stopped and everyone would be guilty before God. We've all sinned, but Rahab has made sin a profession, right? Like she's a professional sinner. Anytime you go from I sin to I do sin as a profession, that's a bad day, right? When you need to you know, be a drug dealer or a hitman or, or a prostitute, that's not a good day when sin becomes your profession. Because now you're obviously sinning more frequently, but you're also causing other people to sin, right? Some things are solo sports, bowling, tennis, chess. Prostitution is not a solo sport, okay? That's a team endeavor. So she not only sins, but she also allows people to take their malformed desires and allow them to sin as well. And this is messy, and this is dirty, and this is nasty. And what it's saying is here is Rahab the harlot, this person with a sin problem, and she's about to perish. Now, she does not perish as those that did not believe, but she is about to perish, to be ruined or to be destroyed. Oftentimes when you see the word perish in the Bible, it means to be given over to the eternal misery of hell. This is why the most classic verse in all of the Bible, that if there's one verse people know, it's John 3.16, will tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him or has faith should not perish but have everlasting life. What is it talking about? It's talking about God delivering us from sin, from the consequences of sin, from perishing, from hell, us being delivered from that. Because of sin and what it does to us, sin is the most massive problem that any human has, and the solution to sin, that God would come and would deliver us from that, is the most blessed, uh, the most difficult the most essential thing that God has ever done, that he would save us or offer salvation from our sins. It's the most essential thing because it's what you need the most. It's the most blessed thing because it actually gives you joy in relationship with God. It is the most difficult thing because it cost him his life, that he came and had to actually take the punishment for our sins. That's why Jesus can be known as both the just and the justifier in the cross, that God's justice was measured out and that punishment for sin still came, but he's also the justifier in that now because he's taken our punishment, he can justify us or give us right standing before God and we don't have to take the wrath or we don't have to take the punishment. 
So that's a seven-minute definition of salvation and sin and what that is. And the reason I give this to you is because what the text is trying to communicate at its most, most basic level is that Rahab is a woman who received salvation. She is a woman who had faith, yes, and what became of this faith? This wasn't the Red Sea parted. This wasn't walls of Jericho fell down. This wasn't this or that. This was she did not perish. And those that did not believe, they did perish. That Rahab was saved from perishing. She was saved from this. How? So how does this come? Well, if you didn't catch it, I'll put it very plainly, by faith. She got it because she had faith. Those that did not believe did not get it. This is how salvation comes. It comes via the grace of God and our faith. Now, there are different perspectives on how this comes. I don't want to take for granted that we would all just agree to this and nod our heads to this. Uh, They're inside of Christendom. I will just broadly use that term. There are different theological perspectives on how someone might be saved. There's, there's a lot, but they can really be boiled down to three perspectives. One is universalism. Universalism is the idea that God's pretty much just going to save everybody unless you're like super bad. Like unless you're a pedophile or a murderer or something, then God will save everybody. And you, you can be of whatever faith you want. It's just kind of all the roads leading up the same mountain. God's at the mountaintop. As long as you have just some version of faith, or just you respond to morality in general. You could be an atheist. As long as you respond to morality in general, God will look at you. He'll wink at that. He'll say, good job, you know, hats off to you. And you'll just, you'll just go to heaven and he'll be your father. That's universalism. That's not true biblically at all. Like, it's nowhere close. There's also the idea of inclusivism. This starts to get a a little bit closer, but it's still off. And this is the idea that if you do respond to the Christ-like elements of any faith, then you will be saved. You don't necessarily have to even know the name of Jesus. You could kind of be an anonymous Christian. You, you don't even have to claim the term Christian. But whatever components of Islam or of Judaism or of whatever it is that you believe, if, if you take the Christ-like elements and those resonate with you and those inform your life and help you and you reject the parts that are overtly anti-Christ and you reject the violence of Islam or that sort of stuff, if you respond in that way, then of sorts, You're responding to the gospel, and God will look at that, and God will have mercy on that, and God will save you, and he'll include you. There have even been some uh, famous Christians over the years, even people that I know and love and respect. I can't say I know them, actually, but I would respect them, believe this. C.S. Lewis is a prime example of this. Uh, 90% of C.S. Lewis stuff I love, I enjoy, I read. Uh, He has some really great thoughts. Uh, C.S. Lewis was more of inclusivism. And on that part, I would say he was off the reservation. But the Bible never says that. The Bible portrays the way someone would be saved, the way they would have faith, is the exact same way that, that Rahab got it, by faith. It portrays salvation as rather exclusive, that the only way, now post Jesus, post the cross, for someone to be saved is through a conscious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that I respond in repentance of my sin and faith to Jesus, and I put my faith in Jesus. Acts will tell us that there's no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. 
Jesus would tell us that he was the way and he was the truth and he was the life. First John will tell us that you are not born of God unless you confess that Jesus was the Christ. The Bible says all over the place that the only way to get this salvation, the only way to not perish, the only way to be delivered is the same way Rahab got it. She got it through faith. She got it through belief. And what you have in Rahab is this embryonic form of what was going to happen in Jesus, what was going to happen in the gospel, that God would save her through his grace and her faith, not because she deserved it, not because she was smarter than everybody else, not because she was uh, this moral beacon, not because she was special, but because she put her faith in God. And not just faith. James 2 will tell us that she had faith that worked, that it wasn't just lip service, but she actually worked it out. This is why James 2 will say this, that we likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works. You say, okay, time out, pastor. I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I'm smart enough to figure this out. You just said that we are justified, we're saved only by faith. Well, read the first part of that verse. That says that Rahab was justified by works. Which is it? Pick your poison. Is it faith or is it works? Well, you got to keep reading. It says, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Then it says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What it's saying is she had faith, and that faith was real faith, so that faith came out in works, right? This is why the end of the verse will tell you that she receives the spies. There's this peace that's there. What is it trying to say? It's trying to say the gospel, okay? It's very simple. Hebrews 11.31 is the gospel according to Rahab. By faith, you do not perish. If you believe not, you will perish, and that faith will have works attached to it. It will actually manifest itself in something tangibly. She received the spies. She put her neck on the line. She was willing to link up with the people of God because her faith in God was so deep and so profound. That's what it's saying. It is saying that you are saved by faith, and that that faith will come out in a way that is real, that is profound, that faith without works is dead. That's not real. That's just you saying you believe something, but not actually trusting in it. But Rahab really believed. She really trusted. Last question, then we'll apply. Who does it come to? So what is salvation? How do you get it? Well, salvation is where you don't perish. It's where you're saved from your sins and the consequences of sin. It comes via faith. Who does it come to? Well, it comes to pretty much anyone. And I don't mean universalism, that it's just going to come to everybody, but I mean it can come to anybody. This is why the text will tell you that it's the harlot Rahab, right? Why, I mean, why hang that over her head? Why after all these years, why can't you just drop it and be like Rahab, the mother to Boaz or something. Why, why can't you give her another descriptor? Rahab, the woman in the genealogy of Jesus. Why, why Rahab the harlot still? Well, it's trying to tell you. Who is Rahab? She's an outsider. She's a gender outsider in a highly patriarchal society. She's a female. She is a moral outsider. Like Prostitution is her career. She's a religious outsider. She's a Canaanite. 
She's not a Jewish person. She would have been considered by the Jewish people unclean. She wouldn't have been allowed into most of their corporate worship. That on so many levels, she is an outsider, but she is forever a testimony all through the Bible, but here in Hebrews 11, she's a testimony to the reality that no matter what someone has done or where they have been or what they have said or the regrets that they have or the sins that they committed, that they are not outside of the grace of God. That God's grace is big enough for anyone, no matter the damage, no matter the sin, no matter the, the ick that's part of your life. And it's trying to tell you what the gospel says over and over and over and over. That it's not insiders and outsiders. It's not the moral people versus the immoral people or the religious people versus the irreligious people or the good versus the bad. The gospel is for people who understand. At some level, I'm a Rahab. At some level, I've sinned. I cannot, I cannot repay this debt. And I need to throw myself at the feet of Jesus and on the grace of God. And I, by faith, put my put my trust in the Lord Jesus, and that saves me. And all of us have sinned. All of us have wrong, and it's trying to say, the gospel's for everybody. The good news of Jesus is for everybody. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or brown or red. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are or what your socioeconomic background is. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, although I know some of you think to the contrary. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you grew up high class, aristocrat, you know, or if you grew up low class, redneck, NASCAR. It doesn't matter. None of that matters, that all of those things that would separate us and would tear us apart, it would be these lines of division that, that society would put on us, that, that that does not matter. The gospel is for everybody, and that the gospel is supposed to be this really eclectic bunch of people, that you have all kinds of people from all walks of life, with all backgrounds. You have Joshua's and you have Rahab's. That they're all included and they're all welcome at the table. And that God will take anyone who will come in repentance and faith. No matter who you are or what you've done. He'll take you. He'll love you. He'll clean you up. He'll accept you. And then according to Ephesians chapter number 2, this actually makes his grace more glorious. It says that him accepting us was actually to the glory of his grace. As if his grace wasn't already glorious enough. Pre the cross and pre-salvation, God was already gracious. But post the cross, now that everyone is accepted and anyone can come and all are welcome, then that is actually more glorious. His grace now sparkles and shines in a greater way than it ever did before. Why? Because Rahab's are welcome. Who's welcome? Everybody's welcome. Everyone can come. God wants to save anyone. Now, let's not let this just be a theology lesson, okay? I know that churches believe this. I know that people that sit in pews or seats or whatever, that they say they believe this. But can we be honest? Take a trip to the honest planet, shall we? There's lots of churches that don't believe this in practice. Lots. There's lots of churches that maybe they do on the whole, but there's a segment of the congregation that doesn't believe this in practice. Oh, sure. Kudos to you, God. Fantastic. Thumbs up. I'm glad you're gracious. I'm glad that you will love them. I'm glad that you will save them. But save them in a different church. Not in this one. 
I mean, I, I don't really want them around me. I mean, I'll, I'll take the people that, and while I wouldn't describe it strictly as the moral, buttoned-up, conservative people, that's who I want. Bring them our way. We'll welcome them. We'll accept them. We'll love them. We'll help them. We'll answer their questions. We'll get them plugged in. You can be part of the body, but if that's not you, then, ah, no thanks. It's what I've come to, to know as the older brother syndrome. If you're familiar with the prodigal son and that story in Luke chapter number 15, then you get it. The son who goes away and he wastes all of the, all of the substance on riotous living. And he doesn't live for God at all. But he finally comes to his senses and says, maybe there's bread enough in my father's house. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. But he does not anticipate that there's not only bread enough, but there's grace enough. And that when he comes, the father's heart is not to make him one of the servants, but the father's heart is to welcome him and to love him and to hug his neck and to put a robe around him and to say, my son, welcome home. I'm glad you've come back away from your sin. And there's this beautiful story of God wrapping his arms around sinners and God loving them and wanting them. But then there's this older brother. This older brother who hears what's happened and hears that dad's throwing a party and that dad's glad that a sinner would come home. And what does the older brother do? He pouts outside the party. He protests the party. He doesn't get the heart of God. He doesn't get the grace of God. He's, he's the cleaned up moral, never, never left home, kept all the rules, goody two shoes, I'm the right one. How dare you be that extravagant to that person? And he pouts and he protests. And I have known more than enough church people over the years in all kinds of different churches that are the older brother that pout and protest when the younger brothers are welcomed home, as it were. When people say, hey, God's arms are big and we're not going to belittle sin and we're not going to act like God doesn't have wrath or God doesn't have justice, but God wants to welcome you and God wants to save you and God wants to change you. And I've known more than a few people that would say, no, not that group, let's just have this group. Where I ministered before Western Pennsylvania was in California, Northern California. And if you've ever been to California or you've ever heard of it, you know it's a different place. (laughs) It's it's a different place. One of the ministries of our church was to a drug and alcohol rehab center. There were two of them, one for men, one for women. And they were different places, but they were sister ministries. They were connected. And then after that rehab center, there was a series of halfway houses that they would go to. And on Sundays, we would run some cars, some vans, even a bus over to these rehab centers and then eventually to the halfway houses as people kind of graduated out of that center. And it was a center that most people, I would say 90% of people didn't check themselves into. Most of it was court-ordered. That they not only had an addiction, but an addiction that they could not get a handle on, and that led them to some sort of crime And whether it was post-jail time or maybe they didn't get jail time and that was just part of the sentence, they ended up there. So we would pick them up and we'd bring them to church. 50-ish drug and alcohol addicts every Sunday. And that was a constant revolving door depending on who was there and who who was in the treatment center. But I watched over the years more than a few people come to church, say, man, I like the church, I like the people, I like the preaching, the singing, or whatever it is, kids' programs. But I don't think I'm going to stick around. I don't really know that I want to be sitting next to 50 people who are drug and alcohol rehab people. And it grieved me every time. Because they failed 
to understand the heart of God. And sure, it was, it was a little bit messy sometimes. It was a little bit complicated sometimes. There were some rules we had to lay down, like, you know, you need to be in church listening to the sermon, not, not smoking in the parking lot. <laughs> you know, some of that stuff had to happen. And those single girls, you know, it's not a hunting reservation. You're not here to just go try to find, you know, a relationship. You know, we had to have some, some boundaries and some guardrails and be wise about it. But there were people that just said, no, when I come to church, I don't want that. I don't want this to be a hospital for sinners. I don't want this to be where we're reaching them or we're helping them. And that is so anti-gospel. It's anti-Hebrews 11.31. Rahabs are welcome to sit at the table. If they will come, if they will respond in faith, then those people are welcomed. All people are welcome. And I hope that when we understand who is included, that it would, that it would first of all, under, help us understand that we are those people that are sinners and wrong, first of all. If we think we're all that, we're not. But also understand who we should be about, who we should want to love, who we should want to reach. What do we do with this? If the text is simply, here's Rahab, a woman who has had faith. And because of that faith, she didn't perish. But people who believe not, they did perish. And her faith actually manifested itself in real life action. What do we do with this? Well, there's a lot we can do, but here's a handful. First of all, be saved. All right? Fastball down the middle. If you're not saved, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you do not know that your sins are forgiven, if you do not know that heaven is your home, if you do not know what it's like to experience the release of shame and guilt and to have peace with God, be saved. Jesus wants to save you. He came and he died for those sins. He was buried and he rose again. And if you will respond to him in faith, if you'll lay down your sin and accept him as Lord of your life, if you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says he'll save you and he'll take away that sin. So if you never have, today be saved. But if you are saved, be grateful. Okay? Understand what you're saved from so that you can know what to be grateful for. You need to know that you're saved from hell so you can know how grateful to be. You need to know that you're saved from guilt so you can know how grateful to be. You need to know that heaven's your home so that you can know to be grateful for that. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this week, walk through life with a little bit more gratitude. Think about what he saved you from. Think about what he's delivered you from. It wasn't just a little bit of a debt. It wasn't just a little bit of a sin issue that you would have got over on your own. You know, you would have got there in time. You would have matured into the person you were supposed to be and just blossomed into your full potential. No. Understand that he saved you and be grateful to him. But I would say don't just be grateful. Be evangelistic. Have a heart for the down and outer. Have a heart to help people. Have a heart to share the gospel with people. Have the heart of the Father. Don't be an older brother. Have a heart to share the good news of Jesus. You say, Pastor, I don't know. That's scary sometimes. I know it is. Pray for boldness. The Apostle Paul, one of the boldest people that I read about in the New Testament, had to pray for boldness. If he needed to pray for it, maybe you do too. Hey, Pastor, I don't, I don't know that I know everything. I haven't figured it all out. You think Rahab had it all figured out? She's still a testimony. She's still preaching the gospel to us to this day. And I dare say that she probably had some issues and there were probably some chinks in that armor. She didn't have it all figured out. You don't have to. Well, Pastor, I don't know. I kind of have a, I have a past. It's a, it's a little sordid. It's just, it's a little, it's a little messy. Good. 
Let your mess be part of your message. Rahab was okay with that, apparently. Rahab the harlot. But that became a testimony. That became a further evidence of grace. It made the grace even more glorious. And, and I'm not saying, don't mishear me, I'm not saying go live in mess and go have a bunch of sins so that your testimony can be even better. If God saved you, right, parents in the room, do we, can we all attest that we prefer for our kids to have a Hebrews 11:31 testimony without the harlot part? Can we, can we agree to that? We would prefer to just have, uh, by faith, they didn't perish, and their faith actually worked itself out in practical ways. That'd be the best, right? But if you have a mess, if you have a past, let the mess be part of your message. Don't run from that. Don't, don't ignore that. You don't even have to hide it. You can say, look at what God has done for me. My wife got saved under the preaching of a man named Jim Delishmit, and Jim died a number of years ago. But Jim was an evangelist, and the tagline of his evangelistic ministry was four words, from dope to hope. That was his testimony. He was a biker who was a drug addict who someone shared the gospel with, and he got saved and experienced the hope of Jesus Christ, and that was his life, from dope to hope. And he wasn't ashamed of it. He just ran around telling everybody, this was me, that was that, it wasn't good, it was dirty, and I needed to change it, I needed to repent of it, but I found Jesus Christ and I put my faith in him and he has changed my life for the better. That's a beautiful testimony and so is the testimony of I grew up in church and I, I was an older brother, but I understand the heart of God and I, re, I responded in faith as well. Whether you're a prodigal or you're a Pharisee, and we're all probably one or the other, be grateful and use it as your testimony. Share the gospel with people. Open up. Ask them to coffee. Share your faith with them. Meet a stranger and tell them what God's done in your life. Post it on Facebook if you want. There's enough nonsense that's posted on Facebook. Put something good out there. Put the good news of Jesus out there. Tell, give someone a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. Use your mess as a message. Be evangelistic. Share the gospel. But I'll also say this, and this may not immediately hit you in the text, but it's there. Be hospitable. How did her faith work itself out? Well, she hosted a couple spies. She brought them into her house. She took care of them, made sure that they were good to go, and she was very hospitable to them. And it's interesting to me that if you keep reading the book of Hebrews— that you'll go through chapter 11 and all this faith, and then it's going to say that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by Rahab's and Moses's and Abel's and Noah's. We're surrounded by these people, and we look to Jesus, the author and finisher for our faith. But if you keep reading, it'll get into chapter number 13, and it will tell you this. It will say, let brotherly love continue, and be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels Unawares, or they entertained angels without knowing it. That's a whole other sermon that we could spend on angels, and that's not the point of today. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. See what it's saying? It's saying if you know the good news of Jesus and you get the heart of God, that God loves sinners, that God wants to save sinners, that Jesus was the friend of sinners, that Jesus died for sinners, then you should have an evangelistic heart. You should want to share the gospel with them. But you should not just have a drive-by evangelism where you drive by, shoot them with a gospel bullet, and then keep moving. That you actually should have the gospel impact you in such a way that you love them. 
that you care for them, that you open up your mouth and you share the gospel, yes, but you also open up your lives and you begin to love and you begin to share. And it says most specifically that you would entertain or be hospitable to strangers, that you would take people into your house or you would share with them some of your possessions, you would put a roof over their head or you would make sure that they were fed or you would care for people that you don't even know. And that sounds risky, yeah. That sounds a little scary even. Yeah, but it sounds really gracious and really loving. That you would not forget those people. Then it says that you would visit the prisoners. I don't know the last time that you, you know, went and visited a prisoner just to say hey or just to keep them company or just to consider that they may be lonely or to do a jail ministry or something. But it says be that mindful, be that loving, be that hospitable. Even Jesus would attest to this when he said that I'll remember you. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you, you gave me food. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. What is it saying? It's saying that being evangelistic or taking the gospel, what Rahab did, this, this is more than just opening your mouth. It's more than just sharing the good news. It's not less than that. It's never less than that. But it's more than that, where you open up your life and you begin to, to say, how can I help them? Or how can I help them? Or what can I do for them? It's mercy ministry. It's being hospitable. It's being gracious. It's being benevolent. It's being a spirit-filled evangelist and being a generous do-gooder all at the same time. My wife read a book years ago, and I didn't read it because she... I felt like she kept me up to date with the book that I was reading it via her. She kept telling me what it was, which was The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield, a lady who did not know the Lord or want to know the Lord, but a Presbyterian pastor and his wife invited her over to meals over and over and over and over again, and eventually she became curious as to what this was they believed and how, and it just warmed her heart, and eventually she became saved. She's a pastor's wife now. But I loved the tagline of her book, the title of her book, that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that idea. That the gospel and the sharing the message also comes with this being hospitable, being a Hebrews 13, and saying, you know what? People need Jesus. People need the Lord. People need salvation. People need to know the truth. Let's tell them. Let's show them. Let's live it. Let's love them. And my prayer for today, and I even said it earlier in the service, was that we wouldn't just come and open our Bibles to learn something, but that we would come and we would open our hearts and our lives to live something and to say, may this be us. May it be you. And not just us, like, oh, yeah, it's us as a church. It's like 90% of us, you know, we do this. I don't, you know, but our church does as a whole. No, 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 you, your family, you. Let this be us. I'll close this morning with a hymn. This is a hymn from Fanny Crosby. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Fanny Crosby, but she wrote a ton of hymns. She was a a blind woman who lived uh, primarily in the late 1800s. And she wrote this hymn in 1869. Some of you may have grown up singing this hymn in church. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep o'er the erring ones, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are slighting him, still he's waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive, 
Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. So rescue the perishing. Why? Because duty demands it. Strength for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer, a Savior has died. And many of you know that classic chorus, right? Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. May we be grateful that merciful Jesus saved us. And may we take that truth and give it and show it to the Rahabs of the world, to the people that surround us and the people that need it. May we share the gospel with them. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this little story of Rahab. Thank you for the truths that are here, that you will save people by faith, that we don't have to earn, we don't have to work, we don't have to do all these things. It's just simple faith in you. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for delivering us from hell and sin and guilt and death. And Jesus, I pray that we would have a heart for people. I pray that we would want to share your good news. I pray that we would take our faith and that it would work itself out, even in an evangelistic way, even in a hospitable way. I pray that we would have genuine, authentic, real faith. Thank you for the good news and thank you for wanting to save us. This morning I'm going to ask you to remain just in a spirit of prayer as we always do. And if you're a Christian, right now, take a minute, be grateful. Thank Jesus. Praise Jesus for what he's done for you, that he would die for you, that he would give of his blood for you, that he would save you, that he would forgive you. Take a minute and commit to him. Who is it? Pick one. You can pick ten, but pick one person that you work with, one person that is your neighbor that you want to invite over and start to get to know so that you can share the good news of Jesus with them. One person that you see every day at the coffee shop, whoever it is, pick a name and say, Jesus, help me to be a light to them. Help me to share the good news with them. Help me to show them who you are. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, be saved. It's not hard and it's not complicated. But if you're willing to admit that you're a sinner and you can't solve that problem yourself, and you're willing to say, Jesus, in your mercy, would you save me? I'm going to believe on you. I'm going to put my faith in you. Faith that you died for me. Faith that you rose from the dead. If you'll do that, he says he'll save you. He will rescue you. He'll redeem you. He'll forgive you. He'll give you a home in heaven. And when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, you can do it in peace. Peace knowing that your sin is gone, your guilt is gone, the shame can be gone. If you've never been saved, then right here, right now, would you call out to him? Would you maybe pray these words? These aren't magic words, but if you'll pray something like this, he'll save you. Just say this. Just say, Jesus, I'm asking you to save me from my sin. I repent of it, and I give it to you. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe that you rose for me. 
And right now, I make you Lord of my life. Help me to live for you from this day forward. Like I said, that's not a script. But if you will call out to him with authenticity and with sincerity, he says he'll save you. He says that he will redeem you. He will. For those of you that are saved, remember that moment right now. Take a minute and reflect back. When you've understood the gospel, when you understood what it meant, and you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that should overwhelm you with joy. That was a good day. When the penny drops and the, the lights come on and you understand that Jesus wants to save you, remember that and thank him for it and praise him for it. Lord, we come to you one final time. Thanking you for being good, for being gracious and merciful. Jesus, thank you for saving sinners. but not just broadly for saving sinners. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for giving us heaven. Thank you for delivering us from hell and from sin. Jesus, as, as best we know how, we praise you for the glory of your grace. Your graciousness to us, to Rahab, it is beautiful to us, it is wonderful to us, it is powerful to us. And we do our best to say that you deserve the glory and you deserve praise for that. That you would save us even though we don't deserve it, and we didn't earn it, but you would give it. Thank you. Lord, I pray that as we share it with other people, that even if they don't believe, that they would say, man, I wish that were true, that they would see that it is good news. It is fantastic news that you, as God, would love us in this way, that you would that you would give to us salvation. I pray that we don't get over it, that we don't grow accustomed to it and help us to have a heart to share it. Jesus, help me. I know that I stink at this some days. There are days that go by where it's the last thing on my mind and I'm rushing around from one thing to the other and not mindful of people or mindful of souls. Forgive me of this and renew a heart and a passion to want to share you with others. To not just want to, but to do it. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your strength. We ask for your Spirit's aid in this. We know that your Spirit came to convict the world of sin. So we ask for your power and your help because we do not want to do this on our own. Would you give us the resources that we need? 
And Jesus, we pray and we praise in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to say a couple things and we're going to dismiss this morning. Number one is, I love you and I'm glad that you're here. Number two is, if you would like to continue, uh, that was, I don't know about for you, but at least for me, that was a little prayer session and that was highly enjoyable. Um, But we're going to continue this prayer session right at the end of the hall. If you're going to be a part of that, please do. But there's a couple of things we want to tell you by way of video. So watch this video at the end. You can be dismissed. And I love you, and I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for coming today, church. It wouldn't have been the same without you. If this is your first time with us, or maybe you haven't been in a while, we want to welcome you. We're glad you chose to worship with us. And one of our pastors would love to meet you at the welcome desk after the service. If you haven't already received it, we have a small gift for you and a Bible too. Before we go, we'd like you to consider how you can be involved at Harvest. Let's check out these upcoming opportunities. On Saturday, June 4th from 10 a.m. to 4, Jim Braceland and Silent Word Ministries will be holding an event for the deaf community called Fantastic Saturday. If you know anyone who might be interested in attending, you can pick up a flyer at the welcome desk to share with them. Our teens are heading to a Christian summer camp in a couple of months. As they earn money to attend, we'd like to allow you to invest in our young people. Rent a Teen is a way to sponsor teens by renting them for a day to do housework, yard work, or some other odd job that would be a help to you. If you're interested, you can sign up at the welcome desk. Today, after the 1030 service in the chapel, we will be hosting a prayer meeting for those who are sick or struggling physically. If you would like someone to pray over you or you would like to pray for someone, please join us for this special time of prayer. Due to the leaked Supreme Court info in regards to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, there's a lot of question and confusion about what this may mean. Has the pro-life industry won? Does this mean that abortion will be brought to a halt? Dave Coyle, the leader of the abortion and pro-life ministry here at Harvest, will hold a brief informative meeting in the cafeteria on Sunday, May 29th, to address questions like these. The goal is to clear up confusion, address questions, and provide Christians with how they can get involved. On Saturday, June 5th at 6 p.m., we'll meet for an evening of corporate worship. We'll gather together, sing together, worship together, and as always, when our focus shifts to God, we'll glorify Him for all that He has done and all He will do through our church, our families, and our personal lives. Nursery will be provided. We hope to see you at our next night of worship. Thank you again for joining us this weekend. If you decided to accept Christ today, we think that is something to celebrate. Stop at our welcome desk and let one of our pastors know so we can partner with you as you begin your relationship with Jesus. You can connect with us throughout the week at harvestbaptist.info and on our social media. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.